0: Good morning, you guys. Good to see everybody here, and thankful we can be together to worship uh, this morning. If you're new with us, thanks uh, for, for joining us. I hope you make yourself at home today, and I would love to get to meet you after the service, and I hope you're welcomed well while you're here today. If you have your Bible with you, you can turn to John chapter 21. We'll be in verses 1 to 14 today. Um, Over the past few weeks, we've been looking at some of the different resurrection appearances of Jesus to his disciples, and it's kind of been fascinating to see who Jesus chose to appear to in his resurrection body and and how those different interactions transformed those people. We've seen Mary Magdalene, who was the first one to see the resurrected Christ, she was weeping at Jesus' empty tomb because she thought that somebody stole his body and And then Jesus suddenly appears to her, and he turns her weeping into rejoicing. And then we saw the 11 disciples who were so scared of being hunted down that they were hiding inside this room in Jerusalem, and and then suddenly Jesus appears to them inside of that room, and he turns their fear into rejoicing. And then last week, we saw how the disciple Thomas, who wasn't in that room at that time, uh, he says... Unless I see the, the nail prints in Jesus' hands, unless I touch them, unless I'm able to put my hand in Jesus' side where he was stabbed with a spear, I will never believe that Jesus has risen from the dead. And a week later, Jesus graciously appeared to Thomas, and he said, Thomas, look at my hands and put your fingers in the scars and look at my side and put your hand inside my side and see that I really am alive, and immediately Thomas' disbelief turned into belief or faith in Jesus as his Lord and God. And so in these three resurrection appearances alone, which John talks about, uh, we've seen Jesus transform weeping into joy, fear into joy, and disbelief into faith. This morning we're going to look at how Jesus appeared to his disciples a third time, and this is a really unique encounter, and in this passage we see a picture of how a person's relationship with God totally changes when they trust in this good news of Jesus' life, death, and resurrection. Remember that the Apostle John who wrote this says that he penned this eyewitness account for our sake so that you and I might trust in Jesus and believe that this is true and surrender our lives and our souls to God. So before we read this here in John 21, let's, let's ask God to help us. Lord, we thank you that we can be together today uh, to fellowship and to worship you and to, uh, to do that through singing and through the preaching of your word and through fellowship and encouragement. And, as we open your Bible today, we ask, Holy Spirit, that you would please touch us and move powerfully among us here and in our hearts. Uh, thank you for revealing yourself to us um, through your word, and we thank you, Holy Spirit, for drawing us with power to yourself. And, uh, and as we read your word, we ask that you would show us how we can repent and turn away from the sin in ourselves and the sin of this world and how we can instead turn to you in faith as we see you as the one person who can totally satisfy us and as we seek to learn from you and learn to obey you and rest in your grace as we do that. We ask that you would please keep Satan and his demons away from us now. And Jesus, we know that you have all authority in heaven and on earth and we pray all of this in your name, our good King. Amen. So let's just start with John 21. I'll read all of it, and then we'll go back through it and kind of pick it apart. So John 21, 1 to 14. After this, Jesus revealed himself again to the disciples by the Sea of Tiberias, and he revealed himself in this way. Simon Peter, Thomas, called the twin, Nathaniel of Cana in Galilee, the sons of Zebedee, and two others of his disciples were together. Simon Peter said to them, I'm going fishing. They said to him, We will go with you. They went out and got into the boat. But that night they caught nothing. That disciple whom Jesus loved, therefore, said to Peter, It's the Lord. When Simon Peter heard that it was the Lord, he put on his outer garment, for he was stripped for work, and threw himself into the sea. The other disciples came in the boat, dragging a net full of fish, for they were not far from the land, but about a hundred yards off. When they got out on land, they saw a charcoal fire in place with fish laid out on it and bread. Jesus came and took the bread and gave it to them, and so with the fish. This was now the third time that Jesus was revealed to the disciples after he was raised from the dead. So at this point here, Peter and the other disciples had obviously returned from Jerusalem um, back up to their homes in Galilee. And it says here that seven of them decided to go fishing on the Sea of Galilee, which is also called the Sea of Tiberias. And a number of these guys were professional fishermen, remember. And they probably took their boat at night because the fishing was good at night. And so it says that they fished all night. And this, this was their home seat. This, they know the layout of this place. They know where to catch fish, Fish, but it says they caught nothing. But as the sun was coming up, they were fishing pretty close to shore, it says. And Jesus was standing on the shore watching them, but they couldn't tell it was Jesus. And Jesus yelled out to them, Hey guys, you caught anything? Okay, so we, when he says children, it's kind of like in our waves, it's the way he was using it. It's like, Hey guys, you caught anything? And they yelled back, No. And so Jesus yelled to them, Cast your net on the right side of the boat and you, you'll catch some. And for whatever reason, even though the disciples didn't know this was Jesus, they they did listen to him, and they cast cast the the net off the right side of the boat, and suddenly it says their net was so filled with fish that they could not even, with all these guys, lift the net into the boat. And this this was such a miraculous thing here, uh, apparently, that John quickly put the pieces together. And he looks over at Peter, and he says, Peter, it's the Lord. And when Simon Peter heard this... He was so excited to see Jesus that he forgot about the fish, and he just got his clothes on. He made himself uh, presentable, and he jumped into the sea, and he started swimming to shore to get to Jesus. And and while Peter was swimming, it says that the other disciples rowed the boat to shore and dragged the net full of fish behind them. And when they got to the shore, the disciples saw that Jesus already had a fire going, and he already had fish cooking over the fire along with some fresh bread. And, and Jesus told them to bring over some of the fish that they'd caught. And so Simon Peter dragged the net ashore, it says. And, and they couldn't believe how many fish they had caught. So they counted them. They counted 153 large fish. And apparently another amazing thing about this was the fact that their net did not tear. And Jesus then told them, come on over you guys, have some breakfast." And Jesus says, serve them some bread and some fish, and as surreal as this all seemed to them, here was Jesus again in his resurrection body, and they had breakfast with God. And this passage shows us how our relationship with God completely changes when we become reconciled to God through Jesus Christ. To reconcile with somebody means to restore friendship with someone. It means that for some reason your friendship with somebody was broken, but now you've gotten right with each other and you're friends again. And today's passage shows us that when Jesus fixes our broken relationship with God, it does at least three things for us. uh, we We can now come to God with confidence we can trust God to provide for our needs. And we can enjoy fellowship with God. So first, let's look at, look at those one at a time. When, when Jesus fixes our broken relationship with God for us, we can now come to God with confidence. Uh, the night before Jesus died, when Jesus was eating his final meal with the disciples, Jesus told Peter that Peter would deny him three times before the rooster crowed, the next morning and and Peter was appalled to hear this. In fact, he tries to convince Jesus that Jesus is wrong. Peter Peter says, Jesus, I will never deny you. You're wrong. I'll follow you wherever you go. I will go to prison with you if they send you to prison. I will die with you if they if they kill you. I'll die for you. Well, just fast forward a few hours and Jesus was arrested and he was taken to court by the Jews and the Romans and and Peter followed Jesus, it says, from a safe distance behind to see what would happen. And, and when he got to the courtyard where Jesus was, Peter was asked three times by different strangers whether he knew Jesus. And three times Peter told him, I don't know what you're talking about. I don't know the guy. I swear. And then he says, I swear to you, I don't know this man. And right then after saying that three times, the, the rooster crowed. And Peter heard the rooster, and he realized that he had denied the Lord three times, his friend, his teacher, his God, and he ran away, it says, and and he wept bitterly. And after that, we know that Jesus was condemned and flogged by the Romans, and he was hung on a cross where he suffered and died, and, and Peter was not there. Peter wasn't there for Jesus. He wasn't there for any of it. Peter denied knowing Jesus. He felt terrible about it, and then... He basically just abandoned Jesus. And so when we look at today's passage, when Peter realizes that it is Jesus on the shore, how would you expect Peter to react? You'd expect him probably to hide, right? You'd expect him to try to get the disciples to row the boat in the opposite direction. Uh, Peter had done Jesus wrong, and now Jesus was coming back for him, but Much to our surprise, Peter doesn't act scared at all. In fact, when Peter sees Jesus, he immediately drops the net with all these valuable fish and he jumps into the sea. He throws himself into the sea to swim to Jesus. And and Peter was 100 yards from shore, okay? That's not a short swim for a lot of us, especially when you're wearing clothes. And now Peter... If you think about it, he would have appeared a lot more dignified if he had just held onto those nets and helped row the, sh- the, the boat back to shore, but that's not what he does. Peter sees Jesus, and all he wants is to get to Jesus. That's it. So without even second-guessing it, Peter leaves everything behind, and he throws himself into the sea with reckless abandon so that he can get to Jesus first. Why in the world did Peter react this way? How could he run so confidently to Jesus without any fear of condemnation? I think it's because of what happened after Peter denied Jesus and before this appearance on the beach. See, Peter had abandoned Jesus, but Jesus did not abandon Peter. Jesus remained a faithful friend to Peter even though Peter was not a faithful friend to Jesus. Even after Peter denied Jesus, Jesus then went to the cross for him. Peter swore that he would die for Jesus, but in fact, it was Jesus who was the one to die for Peter. And Jesus, on the cross, bore Peter's sin. See, on that cross, Jesus became Peter's sin against Jesus. Jesus became Peter's denial of God on the cross. And then Jesus suffered the punishment of God's wrath toward Peter's sin. And Jesus died. And when he died, Jesus killed Peter's sin and all of its consequences. And three days later, Jesus rose from the dead in his physical body and he peered to Peter twice on that Sunday. And instead of blasting Peter, it says that Jesus blessed Peter Jesus said, peace be with you, Peter. That was his response to Peter. Peace be with you. That is real love. And can you imagine how that must have impacted Peter? Think about that. And it it obviously did, as we see this, it did in a profound way. This is why Peter jumps into the sea to get to Jesus before anybody else. Because Peter knows that Jesus loves him. Peter knows that Jesus forgave him. Peter knows that he has peace with God through Jesus. And now Peter loves Jesus more than ever before. And he doesn't care how undignified he might look by jumping into the water with his clothes on. He just wants to be with Jesus. Because of Jesus' death and resurrection, Peter knows that he can come to God confidently without fear of condemnation. And the same is true today for anybody who trusts in Jesus for eternal life. Just as Jesus bore Peter's sin on the cross and forgave him, so also Jesus bore your sins on the cross and forgives you if you turn to him for forgiveness. Do you believe that just like Peter, your sin, your sins have separated you from God? Do you believe that you need God to forgive you That you're impure on your own and that you need God to purify you from your sin? Do you believe that you need Jesus, God's son, to reconcile you to God because you are unable to do that on your own? If you believe that, then if you haven't before, today's the day to tell the Lord, this is me, God. I'm a sinner. I am Peter here. I have done evil. And I but I believe that you are God. And I need you to do for me what you did for Peter by taking his sin on the cross. I need you to take my sins and forgive me too. And if you ask God to do that, he is faithful and just and will do that because he's good and he's gracious. It doesn't matter what you've done or how many times you have denied Jesus. He will save you today if you trust in him alone. And when Jesus forgives you, that means that he takes away your sin from you. The fancy theological term is expiation. He takes away your sin. It's like in the Old Testament when they committed the sins of the Jews to one of the goats and they would send the goat out of the camp. That was a picture of Jesus taking our sins away from us. Your past sins, your present sins, your future sins, they've already been put onto Jesus on the cross. They've already been killed. They've already been removed from you if you've trusted in Jesus. And in place of those sins, Jesus gives you his righteousness. He purifies you in the very sight of God so that now there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. He will never condemn you because you've been united to Christ through faith. Isn't that awesome? Romans 8.1. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus because of Christ Jesus, right? That means that you don't have to wonder whether God loves you or whether he accepts you because it is Christ who has made you acceptable to God. Christ has made you pleasing to God. So just like Peter jumped into that sea so confidently to get to Jesus, you can now come to God with the same confidence, with the same reckless abandon. New Testament, it says this over and over. 2 Corinthians 3, 4-5 says, such is the confidence that we have through Christ toward God. Not that we are sufficient in ourselves to claim anything is coming from us, but our sufficiency is from God. Ephesians three, eleven to twelve says, This was according to the eternal purpose that he has realized in Christ Jesus our Lord, in whom we have boldness and access with confidence through faith in him. Hebrews four sixteen says, Let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace, that we may receive mercy and find grace grace to help in time of need. And Hebrews ten, nineteen to twenty-three says for he who promised is faithful. So when Jesus fixes our broken relationship with God for us, we can now come to God with confidence. But maybe you think, I can't accept that. And, if, you know, maybe you've heard people say this. I can't, that's too good to be true. I can't accept that God has made me acceptable. Acceptable. I can't believe the idea that I can come to the holy God of the universe with confidence because I know how evil I am. I know all the things I've done. And if you feel that way, then you're actually misunderstanding the gospel of Jesus. If you don't believe that God can make someone like you acceptable to him, then you actually have a higher view of yourself than of the power of God. If you don't believe that God can make you acceptable, then your understanding of what Jesus accomplished on the cross is far too small. The cross doesn't mean that much to you. This is why, we, this is why Paul said, I resolved to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. This is why the cross is the center of the gospel, you guys. Jesus suffered... All of God's wrath toward all of your sin nature and toward all of your individual sins on the cross. He did this for everybody who belongs to him and through faith. This is why the cross is the most supreme display of the glory of the grace of God that anybody has ever or will ever witness or know. This is why the cross of Jesus is our only hope for being reconciled to God instead of going to hell because of our sin. But you can approach God with confidence if you trust in Jesus, not because you have not been sinful, but because Jesus has dealt with your sin in the spiritual realms and he has reconciled you to God. Okay? And because Jesus alone did all the work of reconciling his people to God, that means he gets all the credit and all the glory for it. And this is why we boast in Jesus Christ alone. It's why scripture says, I boast in the cross of Christ alone. I boast in Jesus alone. What else do I have to boast in? Nothing. And this is why it's the desire of our hearts when God changes our hearts to bring glory to Jesus in our lives because we love Him because He first loved us when we didn't love Him. He first loved us. When Jesus fixes our broken relationship with God for us, we can now come to Him with confidence. And in addition to that, because Jesus has fixed our broken relationship with God for us, we can also trust God to provide for our needs. John 21 3 says that the disciples, they fished all night, right? But they caught nothing. And for the disciples, fish was more than just food. This was their livelihood. The disciples weren't fishing for fun, like many of us do. Catching fish was the means by which the disciples provided for themselves. And fed their families. And so it must have been very discouraging and stressful whenever they spent a whole night fishing and then they didn't catch anything. According to the passage, the nets were empty. They didn't even catch one. And they were completely unable to provide for themselves or do anything for themselves to get fish in the boat. And that's when Jesus shows up. And he tells them, To throw their net out one more time off the right side of the boat, and he promises them that they're gonna catch something. And, And for whatever reason, they listened to him, even when they didn't know it was Jesus, and he was right. And they didn't just catch a few fish, their nets. Their net was immediately full of what it says, large fish. So many fish that they weren't even able to haul the net into the boat. They had to pull the net behind the boat to shore. They had to drag it in. And, and just like any fisherman could tell you the exact number of fish he caught on a great day of fishing, John reports that they netted 153 fish that day in one net. And the net didn't even break. And because of scripture, we know he's not exaggerating. Unlike you and me, when we go fishing. Jesus totally provided for the disciples when their hands were empty. And the funny thing we read is that when they got to shore, Jesus already had a fire going. And on top of that, he had fish cooking. These were different fish. So Jesus had fish even when they didn't have fish. You see? They hadn't brought their fish in yet. And then he graciously gave them more than enough fish. For a good day of fishing, on top of that, I don't know what kind of lack or want or need you are feeling today, but Jesus wants to remind you that He is more than enough for you. Right. Maybe you're lacking friends or a spouse or parents or food or a job. Maybe you're lacking health or joy or contentment with your circumstances, whatever problems or worries facing you today, if you have Jesus, he really is all you need. Even when it doesn't feel that way, this is, this is what he tells us, this is truth, that he will be for you your provision. And he will prove himself to be everything you need and more. Many of us know the first verse of Psalm 23, which says, the Lord is my shepherd, I shall not... Want, right? The Lord is my shepherd. He's my caretaker. The Lord is the one watching out for me. And because He's my shepherd, I shall not want, which means I shall not lack anything I truly need. So even if you're living from just, you know, you're barely scraping by, or even if you're battling terrible health problems, even if you are depressed and alone, Even when you're walking through the valley of the shadow of death, you shall not want if you belong to God through faith in Christ. That's a promise Jesus bought with his blood on the cross for you. And when you die, you shall not want. Because even greater than your physical needs, your emotional needs in this life, which are important to God, even greater than those things, you are a spiritual being with spiritual, eternal needs. And Jesus on the cross has already provided for you an eternal, bountiful life with God that will not rust or decay or end. Amen? The disciples here, they're staring at empty nets. They got nothing. But Jesus was with them, and he gave them everything they needed. And Jesus will do the same thing for you today if you belong to him. In Matthew 28, he promises to you and to all Christians, behold, I am with you always. (laughs) And if he's with you always, then he will always make sure that you do not lack because the Lord is your good shepherd. He's the great shepherd. And in addition to this, because Jesus has fixed our broken relationship with God, we can also now enjoy fellowship with God. In John 21, 12, Jesus tells the disciples, you guys, come have breakfast. And, and then Jesus, says, took the bread he had and he shared it with the disciples. And, and then Jesus took the fish that he had and he handed the fish out to the disciples. And here he's not just giving them something to eat. They could go find something somewhere else if they really needed something to eat for that meal. Jesus is inviting the disciples here to sit by the fire and to spend time with him, to hang out with him. That's what he's doing. And God invites you and me to do the same thing. Is that incredible? Think about that. Jesus has not changed. Jesus invites you to spend time with him. Now I'm sure that we could all think of famous or important people that we would like to hang out with, but can you believe that the most important person in the entire universe truly invites you now and every day to come spend time with him? And he doesn't set a time limit on your time together. He's always with you. He will always give you as much focused attention as you give to him. He invites you to talk to him through prayer. Tell God how you're doing. Tell him what you're struggling with. Tell him what you need. Tell uh, tell him what's on your mind. uh, James tells us, if you draw near to God, God draws near to you. And when Jesus was on earth, he showed us that we can have this kind of close life with God. Jesus was, he's first the object of our faith, because he is who we trust for salvation. But secondly, he's the example of our faith. He's the one we want to follow. Luke 6.12 says that in these days he, Jesus, went out to the mountain to pray. And all night he continued to pray to God the Father. So Jesus prayed all night to God because he had a lot to tell God and because he knew that he had to abide in the strength of God to live. And we read at other times that Jesus woke up early and he went to desolate places and he prayed early in the morning. So whether it's by night or by morning, by both, God invites us to fellowship with him. By talking to him, by praying to him, journaling to him. And Jesus also invites you to hear from him, to learn from him as his spirit teaches you through his word. What he calls the Bible, what we call the Bible. All scripture, it says, is breathed out by God. It's the breath of God, the word of God. The Bible is God's love letter to you. It is the story of how he has fixed your broken relationship with God, and it's also your instruction book for how to live life the way he wants you to live it. And Jesus invites you to spend time with him as you serve others, right? When you join Jesus in doing the things that he loves to do, when, when you show mercy and grace and provision to other people as you For his glory, act out as his hands and feet, he is with you in a very real way. It is God who works in us both to will and to work according to his good pleasure. And Jesus invites us to spend time with him as we fellowship with other Christians, as we pray together with other Christians, as we live life together, as we encourage one another, as we share fellowship with others who have the same Holy Spirit that's in us. And Jesus invites us to spend time with him as we worship him through our words and in our hearts, as we sing songs to him, as we make art for him, as we create for him. Jesus, it's real clear, is not interested in being your pin pal. He wants to live with you. This is why he, John 15, that's the whole point, he says in verses four to five, abide in me. And I in you. As the branch cannot bear fruit by itself unless it abides in the vine, neither can you unless you abide in me. I am the vine, you are the branches. Whoever abides in me and I in him, he it is that bears much fruit. For apart from me, you can do nothing. So it's a good question for all of us today. Are we abiding in Jesus? Because if we aren't, what does he say? You can do nothing without me. You can do nothing of eternal good without me. So Jesus invites us to a life of abiding in him as we enjoy hanging out with him, as we enjoy friendship with him for all of eternity. So just to review, when Jesus fixes our broken relationship with God for us, one, we, we can now come to God with confidence. Two, we can trust God to provide for our needs. And three, we can enjoy fellowship, friendship, hanging out with God. And this entire scene with Jesus hanging out with the disciples on the beach And providing for their needs is a picture of what life with God can be like right now for the Christian. And it's also a picture of what heaven will be like for Christians. See, we we will live in eternal peace with God. We will live in fellowship with him as he provides for our needs forever from the riches of his unending grace. This is what heaven will be like. And as we look forward to that day, Jesus has told us, I want you to take the Lord's Supper together as you look forward to that day.